If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, I spoke to the historian and author Nicola Tallis. Nicola's latest book, Uncrowned Queen, is a biography of the formidable 15th century noblewoman Margaret Beaufort. Nicola joined me in our offices in Bristol to discuss how Margaret managed to survive the Wars of the Roses and secure the throne for her son, Henry VII. For listeners who might not know anything about Margaret Beaufort, who's the subject of your new biography, could you start by introducing us to her and her extraordinary life? Yeah, of course. So I think the key things with Margaret um, to, to know are that she was a woman who had the most extraordinary character and in an age when um, you know women were expected to be obedient and subservient to men and their husbands Margaret really broke those rules and managed to assert herself and make her voice heard in this male-dominated world and I suppose today she's best remembered as um, the mother of the Tudor dynasty uh, being the mother of Henry VII and that in itself is a really extraordinary story because she was pregnant at the age of 12 and gave birth to Henry, who was to be her only child, at the age of 13. So I think that in itself is probably the most extraordinary episode of her life and one that we really remember her for today. What kind of sources are we looking at to find out something about Margaret's personality and, as you say, her strong character? Do you know, we're actually really, really fortunate that we have got quite a lot of source material for um, various areas of Margaret's life, particularly for her later years, when we've got 
a relatively complete set of her household accounts. And these give us an insight into the way that she was spending her money. And she'd always been a very wealthy woman. But by the time these accounts come into existence, she was the king's mother. And she had an extraordinary level of wealth. And they do really offer us these fascinating (laughs) glimpses into her personality. So for example, we can see that she had two fools. Um, One was called Skip. And she often paid for his clothes and for them to be washed. Um, he wore high-heeled shoes. And uh, she had another um, another fool later in life whose name was Reginald the Idiot. Uh, so she was a woman who really liked to be entertained. She really enjoyed hunting. She enjoyed hawking. She loved gambling. Um, and she was also really fond of the finer things in life. So we see, again, payments in her accounts for wine, white wine. She was also really really quite fond of clothes um, and and jewels as well. So there are lots of payments in her accounts to goldsmiths for various items. So she really was a woman who liked the finer things in life. Margaret's early life, which she managed to cram a lot into, was dominated by the Wars of the Roses. Um, She was living in a very, very turbulent time. How did that backdrop of turbulence in England affect her upbringing? Um, I mean, it it directly impacted her life right from the start, really. Um, Her father had died just a couple of days before her first birthday, not as a result of the Wars of the Roses, um, probably, sadly, at his own own hand. Um, But it it left Margaret very vulnerable and... um, from the start of her life, she was always sort of the the victim of um, of men and power politics, and um, she did become very directly involved with the, in the Wars of the Roses um, because it was as a result of the death of her second husband, Edmund Tudor, Henry um, Henry the Seventh's father, and um, the onset of the Wars of the Roses that Margaret then felt obliged to remarry. Rather extraordinarily, given that she was 13 at this time, she played a very large hand in arranging her third marriage and choosing her third husband. Um, But then when Edward IV succeeded to the throne, um, she did her very best to try and ingratiate herself with the king. I think primarily her motivation was in order to try and keep her son safe. That was always at the fore. Um, forefront of her mind and it was at her urging that following the Lancastrian defeat at the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471 that Henry Tudor who was then 14 fled abroad um, and didn't come home again until 1485 when he won the Battle of Bosworth. Um, Until that point Margaret really sort of tried to keep her head down and ingratiate herself with Edward IV and and the Yorkists. Um, But as soon as Edward IV dies unexpectedly in April 1483 and, you know, the the whole mysterious happenings of Edward V being usurped by Richard III occur, Margaret seems to take a, well, she does, she takes a more active and very different stance on things. And it's at that point that she suddenly... Um, perceives an opportunity for her son to become King of England. Um, And prior to 1483, the idea of Henry Tudor becoming King of England would have been completely absurd. Nobody would ever have considered him. Um, But it's as a direct result of um, the disappearance of of the princes in the Tower and Richard III's usurpation that Margaret then takes a direct, more direct role 
in The Walls of the Roses and Plots Against Richard III. We'll come back to Plots Against Richard III in a minute, but from what you're saying there, she took a very active role in shaping the course of her own life. Yeah, very much so. To begin with, she started life by playing by the rules, I think it's fair to say. And then, yeah, I think as soon as as soon as soon her son's born... Um, it really changes her whole outlook and suddenly it's not just herself that she has to consider. She has this other life and one that's infinitely more precious to her. And I think that that really, um, that was a real driving force for Margaret when it came to yeah, shaping shaping her own life and her own destiny. And she was determined at that point to avoid a husband not of her own choosing being thrust upon her. And so takes matters into her own hands and I think really from that point onwards from the age of 13 onwards that's when she really sort of takes control of her own destiny. When you say from the age of 13 onwards it is incredible by by 13 she was entering into a third marriage she'd been widowed and had a child. I think I think it really made her a stronger character. Uh, she'd had a very devastating start in life like I say with her her father, who she'd never known, um, possibly dying at his own hand. And, um, and and similarly, when her second husband, Edmund Tudor, died, you know, these two male protectors from her life have, have gone. Um, equally, she had a guardian before that, the Duke of Suffolk, who was murdered. Um, so I think, you know, from, from that point onwards, she, she realises that men can be unreliable, and um, it really sort of gives her the opportunity to to make her own, um, to bring out her own character and to, to make her own decisions in life. Margaret gave birth to Henry at a very young age and she never had any of the children despite marrying two more times after his father had died. How unusual would that have been at the time? I mean, I tried to do quite a lot of research into the um, the physical side to work out you know, if there were any physical reasons why she couldn't have given birth to, to more children. Um, and there are physical possibilities, but I think 500 years on, it's it's dangerous to make those sorts of claims. And um, I, but I do wonder if it was a conscious choice of Margaret's not to become pregnant again and not to give birth to any more children. Um, and, you know, there are several reasons why I say that. I think it's very clear that Henry's birth left her emotionally traumatised. We know it was a very difficult birth and it certainly left her with emotional scars. Um, as you can imagine, you become pregnant at 12 and, you know, you, she was very physically slight. So, um, yeah, I can. we can only imagine how difficult that whole process must have been for her. Um, but I think also, I think, uh, so later in life, there was um, one of her books where she'd um, highlighted a passage that said, that talked about frigidity and talked about, you know, was it a sin to loathe sex? And I feel like that's quite telling in Margaret. Um, and the fact that all of her husbands, or most of her husbands, are chosen primarily for the political advantage that they can offer her rather than for any personal reasons. So as far as we know, um, Margaret never married for love, even though her third marriage to Henry Stafford was um, quite happy, I think. But um, yeah, I, I do wonder if it was perhaps a conscious choice that she made not to not to have more children. But 
you know, it's, it's, it's only speculative. Something I found very interesting in the book is that Margaret's um, allegiances didn't always necessarily marry up with those of her husband. Um, she was born into a Lancastrian family, but she later became very important in the Yorkist court before then, again, leading rebellions against um, Richard III and, and the Yorkists. Do you think she was motivated by family loyalty or was she just a canny political manoeuvrer who was uh, looking for her next opportunity? I think a bit of both. I think she was very pragmatic and um, she'd learnt pragmatism from a very, very early age from the experiences of all these men that she'd had in her life, her husbands and so on. Um, I think um, ultimately she was always very loyal to her own house, the House of Lancaster, but I think that she was astute enough to know when a battle or a cause was lost, um, at least temporarily. And I think that's very much what we see with Margaret, is that when um, when Edward IV becomes king in 1461, um, I think at that time Margaret realises that she really has no choice at that time but to submit herself to... Um, to the House of York. And we see that with her husband at that time, Henry Stafford, who'd always also been a Lancastrian, that they both kind of try their best to try and ingratiate themselves with um, with this Yorkist king and this Yorkist regime. Um, and I think, yeah, that was a, um, a policy that Margaret employed throughout the reign of Edward IV. And, you know, she we know that she was trying to negotiate with Edward IV for the return home of her son, Henry, and that he actually signed a draft pardon for Henry's return. But sadly, it's like a, an episode from a soap, um, Edward then dies before the pardon can be implemented. And then there's all this uncertainty with Richard III. And I think at that point, Margaret sort of threw caution to the wind and, you know, for all this time, she'd sort of lain low and tried to keep on um, on Edward IV's, uh, in his good books. And at that point, she sort of decides that she's going to yeah, risk it all. And unfortunately for her, at that time, it all goes badly wrong. What do you think was key to her survival through all these regime changes? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, with Richard III, I think she was just very fortunate that... Um, that the king couldn't afford to lose the support of her then fourth husband, Thomas Stanley. Um, but prior to that, I think I think she hadn't really done anything um, out of the ordinary that placed her in danger. Um, but yeah, her actions during Richard III's reign were very different. And I do think it was solely down to the fact that Richard III needed her husband, Lord Stanley's support, um, that that was the only reason that Margaret kept her head. I think otherwise she would certainly have been executed. Can you tell us a bit more about her um, involvement in the plot, in a plot against Richard III? Yeah, so um, it's very likely that almost from the start of Richard III's reign, Margaret had begun plotting against him. Um, and we know that by October 1483, so uh, just a few months after Richard's usurpation, um, Margaret had become involved in the rebellion popularly known as um, the Buckingham Rebellion, which was led by the Duke of Buckingham, who was also one of Margaret's kinsmen. Um, he was her, her cousin and nephew by marriage. And um, the the whole point of this was to overthrow Richard and, um, at least in Margaret's eyes, replace replace Richard with her son, Henry Tudor. Um, and 
We know that she was very busy working on her son's behalf, sending her messengers abroad to keep Henry informed of what was going on in England. Um, but unfortunately, the the plot was a dismal failure um, and the Duke of Buckingham was executed. Henry Tudor, who'd sailed to England, swiftly turned back around and headed back to um, to Brittany. Um, and Margaret herself, she was, she was so fortunate... Um, because, as I said, she could quite easily have met a traitor's death. Um, but instead, in some ways, I think that the punishment was worse for her because she had all of her lands taken away from her and all of her life um, she was, you know, she was very involved with the running of her lands and later in life we see this as well. So I think for her that would have been a very bitter pill to swallow and she was placed under house imprisonment with her husband as her custodian, um, forbidden to write to her son, forbidden to have any contact with him. Um, so yeah, it could have been it could have been a lot worse for her. She could have she could have been killed, but I think for her, um, she would have seen the consequences as being pretty dire anyway. What was it that turned her against Richard? Why was she um, happy to negotiate with and ingratiate herself to Edward, but couldn't quite tolerate it with Richard? Yeah, I mean it's a really good question and one that we don't quite know the answer for for sure I think whether I mean my personal opinion is that she probably thought that her son would have been assured of a better future under um, you know when Edward IV dies uh, under Edward V Edward's son Um, I'm not sure if Richard had perhaps you know um, left her with little reason to hope that her son Henry might be able to return home I don't we don't really know for sure but I think really she'd she was right on the verge of managing to achieve the return home of her son who she'd not seen for that time for more than a decade and you know she hadn't really spent very much time with him at all whilst he was growing up so I think the fact that suddenly his future was up in the air um, everything was up in the air really when Richard III came to the throne I think I think Margaret just I don't know, just took a gamble and um, unfortunately didn't pay off at that time. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And that everything that she did um, right until the end of her life was motivated by her family and her, her love and devotion to them. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. She was clearly quite a skilled negotiator. What were some of the ways in which a woman, um, a noble woman such as Margaret, could exercise power 
um, at the time. There weren't very many, actually, um, because, yeah, they, they were sort of expected to be um, to be quiet and um, content themselves with their domestic duties. But I think, actually, Margaret is quite different because she, um, even during the days of her third marriage to Henry Stafford during the, the 1460s, um, we see that, you know, she was always travelling with her husband and, um, you know, and accompanying him to London when he went to visit Parliament um, or, you know, travelling around and and visiting her lands with Henry Stafford in tow and later again with her fourth husband, Thomas Stanley. Um, You know, she was trying her best to advise and support him um, and uh, helping with the running and administration of his lands as well. So I think that was something that women could do was to um, was to oversee everything that was a sort of considered to be in the domestic sphere um, whilst taking a back seat when it came to, to matters of politics and things. And I think, yeah, up until a certain point, that was something that Margaret was relatively content to do. Um, later on, of course, she negotiated um, a marriage between Henry, her son, and Elizabeth of York, who was the daughter of Elizabeth Woodville. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit about the relationship between Margaret and Elizabeth Woodville? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it's really difficult to get a a true understanding of what the relationship between them was because I think that there's no doubt that Margaret probably would have been surprised as surprised as the rest of the country when Edward IV announced um, in 1464 that he had married Elizabeth Woodville secretly Um, and you know she was the first commoner to become a Queen of England Margaret was someone who was always very conscious of her her noble um, background and her drops of royal blood so I do wonder how she would have felt about the fact that she was suddenly having to bend her knee before this commoner Queen of England. But certainly if there was any friction between them during Edward IV's reign, then she didn't let it show um, because we know that she did, as the 1470s drew on, Margaret was playing an increasingly prominent role at the Yorkist court um, and you know, she would have been in, in Elizabeth Woodville's presence fairly frequently. Um, so we know that, for example, when Elizabeth gives birth to her last child in 1480, um, Princess Bridget, Margaret was the one who um, carried the princess to the font at her christening. And so that sort of indicates to me that by that time, Elizabeth Woodville probably you know, had come to trust her. And then, of course, during the reign of uh, of Richard III, that's when, as you say, they began plotting this marriage together for, um, for their, their children. And I think by that time... Um, Margaret, in some way, sort of took advantage of the fact that Elizabeth was in quite a perilous situation, having gone from being, you know, Queen of England to suddenly she's living in penury in um, in sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. And I think Margaret, you know, probably um, uh, probably played on that quite a bit. And um, yeah, so they have this um, this plan in place. Of course, that all goes goes wrong when the Buckingham Rebellion fails, and um, after that. Um, Elizabeth Whitfield comes to terms with Richard III. And I can't help but think that Margaret would have felt quite bitter about that, about her abandonment of her son. And I I do also wonder if then when Henry VII um, came to the throne, two years after that, Elizabeth is, is 
basically banished from court um, and goes to live at Bermondsey. And, um, you know, it's quite mysterious how that all comes about. But I do wonder how big a role Margaret played in that, because I think at that point she had established herself as the leading lady in the land and she certainly wasn't going to be overlooked by Elizabeth Woodville. Um, so I don't get the impression that they were great friends. I think they worked together um, when when they had to. But I think for Margaret, it was um, it was a relationship that was born out of perhaps necessity rather than gen- any genuine warmth of feeling. But they were both two women playing very important political roles in court at the time, which is something I think maybe um, a lot of people don't necessarily associate with this period. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think the 15th century in general is a really, really extraordinary and unique period for for women um, because we see so many, um, you know, uh, ups and downs with, you know, one minute Margaret of Anjou is queen and then Elizabeth Whitfield's queen. And then it's back to Margaret of Anjou. And anyway, there were all these sort of power politics going on. And for the first time, women have been given the opportunity to make their voices heard and to play a role in politics in the way that they never have done before. Um, and so it really is sort of unique for its turbulence and for yeah for the, the way that women were able to assert authority. Um, some people have thrown out the theory um, that Margaret may have been involved in some dark way in the disappearance of Elizabeth Woodville's two sons, the princes of the Tower. What's your opinion on that? I just don't think there's a case to answer to. <laughs> I just I just think it's absurd. Why do you think people are so keen to um, cook up these theories which may seem very outlandish from the um, source material? I don't know. I think I think I think it's it's one of those mysteries. Um, that has just captured popular imagination and um, revisionists and, you know, people who choose to believe that um, Richard III wasn't responsible. Um, I think it's it's just one of those theories that people are casting around for, well, who else could it be? Of course, it could be Margaret Bayford. <laughs> but, you know, that it is really, really important to say that not one contemporary source links Margaret with their disappearance. And to me, that is the most convincing argument that she wasn't involved. After her son Henry um, defeated Richard at Bosworth and uh, then took the throne, Margaret found herself as the mother of the king. Um, How much power did she have in this position? Um, So this is really where the title of my book comes from, Uncrowned Queen, because I I feel like that just says it all. I think that as soon as Henry VII becomes king, that's Margaret's position completely transformed and she is able to wield power on an unprecedented scale. And um, and Henry allows her to do that, which I think, again, that's a real testament to the strength of their relationship, which is really quite remarkable considering that they haven't spent that much time together. Um, but yes, yeah, she really be- did become the most powerful woman in the realm and basically a queen in all but name. Um, she was certainly a lot more powerful than Henry's wife, Elizabeth of York. And what form did that power take? 
take. At the beginning of Henry's reign, she was almost a constant presence by her son's side for probably the first 10 years or so, probably a bit more than that. Um, And, you know, she was always listed, quite often listed as though um, she and the Queen were the same person. Their names were always next to each other. Um, She was reported to walk just half a pace behind the Queen. Um, And so she was very, very visible at the forefront of the royal family. A bit of an overbearing mother-in-law. Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) Um, And... Yes, yeah, so she's always there at court ceremonial and her name is is always listed amongst the royal family, which sort of gives an indication that contemporaries really viewed her as being powerful. Um, and then from 1499 onwards, she, um, she moved away from London to Northamptonshire um, to Collie Weston, which she developed into a, a huge, very grand palace. And it was here that she basically became the king's um, unofficial lieutenant in the Midlands and began administering justice in the king's name. Um, so we know, for example, that she would hear, yeah, she would hear cases. Um, uh, for example, there was one instance where she, um, you know, um, she was trying people if you like for um who'd been slandering the king in a colchester tavern and you know people would come to her with their lawsuits and their problems and she would pass judgment in the king's name and deliver justice she did wield a huge deal of power um and i think that she she absolutely loved it <laughs> and how unusual was that at the time it's completely unprecedented. Um, and in doing so, she carved out a completely new role for herself within the Tudor regime. Um, and I think what's really interesting as well is that lots of people don't recognise that um, when, when sadly, her son died in April 1509 um, and his heir, Henry VIII, was just a few weeks short of his 18th birthday, it's left to Margaret to sort of oversee the smooth running of things. And she then basically acts as Henry VIII's unofficial regent for a few weeks um, in the lead up to his 18th birthday and really sort of takes control of the situation and, um, you know, helps with all the arrangements for Henry's um, Henry's coronation, um, oversees Henry VII's funeral arrangements. So again, she's, she's really wielding power all the way through Henry VII's reign, right through to the start of Henry VIII's reign. Even after her son was king, she, she was married still um, to Stanley, yeah. but she led a very seemingly independent life. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is just something else that's completely unprecedented um, because as soon as Henry VII becomes king, um, she becomes a femme sole or um, basically an in- independent woman. And she. this is passed through Parliament, so it gives her complete independence uh, financially. She's, you know, all of her lands are her own and can't be touched by Stanley. Um, she's basically got, um, you know, uh, every sort of independence going. She separates from him completely, although they still remain on really good terms. Um, but Margaret later then takes a vow of chastity as well um, with Stanley's approval. Um, so, yeah, it, she basically, it's almost like she's waited for the moment when Henry becomes king to suddenly turn around and say, okay, this is what I've been waiting for. Now I can do my own thing. Now I'm my own woman and there's no one that's going to stop me. Um, and it's at that point, I think, that, yeah, they do still retain an amicable relationship. But from that point on, I think she realised she didn't need a husband because she had all the power she needed by herself. I wonder how that then reflected on 
Stanley. We know that they continued, the couple, they continued to work together and they continued to visit one another. Um, there was one occasion when they hosted a joint visit for the king and queen at one of Stanley's northern estates. Um, so there's no indication as to outwardly how he felt about it. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Who knows? It's, maybe he found it a little bit humiliating. But, yeah, we don't know. Um, I think what, over this the course of this discussion, when we, we start with Henry VI, and as you say, we finish with Henry VIII, um, Margaret's life covered a really extraordinary era and a massive range of events. What do you think were some of the the real defining moments for her particularly? I think there are so many. I think, like I said, I think probably, I think the fact that she grew up without a father and that Edmund Tudor died just a couple of months before her son was born really intensified her love for Henry when he was born. Um, I think that's a real, that is probably the defining moment of her life when Henry's born. And like I say, the fact that she lacked a male father figure and sadly her son um, lacked the same in in that sense. I think that was a real, um, yeah, that really intensified her need to protect him. And that was really the dominant sort of force in her life and shaped all of her actions and what she did from that point. Um, I think when Henry VII became king, that really almost officially gave her um, the opportunity to legitimately voice um, voice her opinions and her power. And it did also give her the opportunity to kind of carve out her own identity and shape her own identity further, which she does because, um, you know, she began, She everyone referred to her as the king's mother, my lady, the king's mother. And that's sort of a very definitive role. And, you know, also after, um, after 1499, she began signing herself Margaret R., been lots of debate over whether the R was for Richmond or whether the R was for Regina. Um, personally, I think it was for Regina. I think that she, you know, she did very much associate herself with royalty. And again, that created other opportunities for her to, um, you know, um, to to think about defining moments. And I think it's then also that she starts thinking about what her legacy is going to be in the long run. And that's when she starts thinking about establishing colleges so you know she um she established two cambridge colleges christ's and st john's st john's wasn't established till after she died but i think um yeah henry the eighth reign i'm sorry henry the seventh reign gives her the opportunity to start thinking about well okay now i've got this power how am i going to be remembered afterwards and i think that's a real uh, a real moment for her because you know those colleges are still there today and so Margaret is built into the very fabric of England. You mentioned before the interview to me that you've sent the book to the printers today. You've brought together everything that there is to know about Margaret. What kind of person emerges? When you finish the book, what woman do you find? Um, I find a woman who I have got a great deal of admiration and, and empathy for, actually. I think she has been, um, you know, the, unfortunately she's had a bad rep in some quarters and personally I do feel like a lot of it's unjustified. There's no doubt that she was, she could be very politically ruthless, um, she could be grasping on occasion, but ultimately I feel like this is a woman who from the start of her life is driven by 
her her love for her son and I feel like that is the dominant force in her character throughout her whole life and that everything that she did um, right until the end of her life was motivated by her family and her her love and devotion to them. So I think that uh, she's a very warm person. She's extremely generous, um, uh, but also someone who who wasn't afraid to to make her voice heard and to um, to pursue something that she saw as her right. That was Nicola Tallis. Nicola's book. Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor Matriarch, is out now, published by Michael O'Mara. You can read a version of my interview with Nicola in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is also on sale now. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. In our next episode, out on Monday, Thomas Harding tells the story of the family behind the iconic Lion's Empire, once one of the most famous names in British food. Hey.